Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's nothing wrong with putting in two to four hours a week doing property. It's just matching the expectations of results to the amount of work that you're willing to put in. This is the Think Big Property Podcast, where Nung earns millions from property development, and Tyrone, that's me, has millions of questions. In this episode, we'll continue the conversation about money rules and why this principle is so important. We learn more about the financial side of doing deals especially if you're going into a deal with other people, how buying under market value can be extremely beneficial for your portfolio and much, much more. Money rules are a set of guidelines that are implemented to help you manage your money in a way that allows you to become more successful. We delve into the financial side of working with other people within deals. In terms of loan agreements, they're probably when you're using joint venture agreements or you're using no money down deals, that loan agreements are very, very fundamental or staple documents there. Um, that's probably the start if you're wanting to borrow obviously money from uh, investors that you might know, giving them a 5, 10, 15% return. So that's a really good start. Loan agreements, if you're getting uh, stuff that's secured by a mortgage against a property, then you'll be needing mortgage documents as well. Uh, furthermore, you may need what's called uh, joint venture agreements or profit share agreements. If you're buying something where someone's funding it all and you're doing the work, you found the deal and they're funding it, you might need a joint venture or a profit share agreement depending on what your solicitor or accountant really, really suggests. So I think those are the fundamental agreements. There are many other agreements like unit trusts um, ranging from yeah, unit trusts to even testamentary trusts and, and things like that. But I think building that relationship with your solicitor, having that conversation with your accountant and going, look, this is what I'm looking at doing. What do you suggest? Because everyone's circumstances are different. Everyone's needs are different. Everyone's uh, risk profile is different uh, and their their fundamental uh, interests and uh, knowledge is different. So I I suggest you just get yourself educated around that as well and start to, you know, go down that path. Just important to also surround yourself with a great team to be able to help you with that because legally... Um, there's so many complicated things that are involved and we won't know everything as well. So, it's important to have yourself surrounded with a great legal team. So, maybe the next question we probably want to ask is, do you want capital gain or cash flow or both in a deal? I think that comes back to what people want out of a deal. I think that's really important is, do you want cash flow? Do you want capital growth? Do you want both? And very rarely do you get both cash flow and capital gain. So, is it Impossible? No, it just means it's it's quite uh, unique and, and you've got to find scenarios of doing that. I've seen people who've done that before where they're able to do that in a high growth area and still able to do Airbnb. Um, what about you, Tyrone? What do you think uh, is possible in that scenario? To actually get both is going to be quite challenging because you are trying to work out in both scenarios. 
especially when you're developing like it's kind of pretty hard if you're doing a reno and subdivision to actually have a tenant in there at the same time and receiving cash flow unless there's something very, very unique but tenants are usually not too happy. Like I'll give you an example right now like currently I'm working with a working partner and we've purchased a property outright where there's a property at the front and we're subdividing the back and we've just finally got subdivision approval on the back from the council after about waiting for about six, yeah, about six months now actually. And we haven't had a tenant in that front property, which we could have potentially, but then that would have slowed the process for us getting in to actually start the renovations because we've got early access. So during that time while we've been waiting, we've actually been going in and working out what things need to be done. If you had a tenant in there, it would have taken a lot longer to be able to get access and probably be inconvenience for them. Plus, once they actually do the renovations and the subdivision at the same time in the back, there'll be a lot of noise that happens and tenants don't usually quite like that as well. So, it is quite challenging if you want to try and get both. Um, ideally, if it'd be the best scenario if you can but I think if you're going for capital growth um, to make a, a profit from the deal, you just focus on that but if you're trying to structure it to maybe create maybe a boarding or affordable housing, then you go for that as well. So, it just depends on your situation on how much also too you're asking yourself what kind of return you're getting and that's part of one of the money rules that we've been discussing as well too. Exactly. So, and that's why generally with my projects, I split them up into quick cash or capital gain as in getting in, getting out, getting paid like a land subdivision. Um, if I'm going to do a two into five, for example, I'll do it, smash it out, renovate the house, keep it vacant and then sell it vacant for potential investor slash own occupier. Uh, and then sell the land down. Land doesn't obviously generate any income. So um, so that's why I like to sell land down. But at the same time, I might do another project which is specifically generally for holding. So I might do a, a small subdivision and then keep some of that land, um, sell some, keep some. And, and then on the one that I keep on the land, I might build a, a multi-occupancy or a mini boarding house. So each deal has its own merits. And, and I know there's a lot of information coming about you can do this, you can do that but you really want to just get clarity. Um, think big, start small, find out what you're looking for. For some of you, you might just be happy with increasing your cash flow by two to 500 bucks a week, which is great. So you might just do a granny flat and start with that, cut your teeth on that, learn how to get finance for that, get that out of the ground. Other of you might be bit further down the track where you've got a bit of equity, you've got half a dozen houses or so, but you're wanting a better return because the market may have flattened out in Sydney or in Melbourne and you've got previous equity that you did build up through the rise of the market and you go, you know what, the capital growth is flat now, but I want to do something else. I want to do something more aggressive or assertive or active to be able to make my money work. And, and therefore, you, know, you might do some Airbnb to increase the cash flow on those existing properties, pull the equity out and buy a small development site where you might build four townhouses or cut it one into two. So th there are so many different ways that you can play this game. Um, but yeah, just start where you're at. I, I think that's the biggest tip I could give to the listeners on this podcast is start where you're at, grow sporadically, grow organically, You know, maybe just get into another deal in these next three to six months. That's so, so important. I think the next thing that would be really important to look at and this is where property development comes into play is to work with people because working with people is also part of the actual whole process and you've also got to have and ask yourself some of the questions about you know, who you're willing to work with and I guess <laughs> this, is, this is the big, big question is um, who your company will be dealing with and, and also what roles would you be playing with each I guess um, 
part of the whole development process. And that's a, that's a really, really big question that I think is important because when you're dealing with people, it's everyone's going to be coming across the table with different ideas and different things. But you just got to come all together in that same. What do you think about that? I think the questions that I've raised there of who you're comfortable dealing with came from a time when I was having some struggles in my business relationships. And uh, I'm not to hear to bad mouth, but uh, I went through a time where one of my business partners, he was just really, really hard to get a hold of and wasn't answering the phone calls. At the beginning, really, really exciting. It's like a new relationship. You have a honeymoon period. Things are going great, but I think he was getting a bit too busy and wasn't answering the phone. And that really, really annoyed me. So, because it's all well and good when things are going great. Market's going up, everybody's excited, money's easy to get. <laughs> but when the market's going the other way, it's coming back interest rates are going up and you've got to solve problems. You need that line of communication. So that's really what that conversation is about. And you'll find town planners that you relate to or engineers or surveyors that you relate to, tradespeople that you relate to and others that you won't for whatever reason. You might have this feeling about you you think there's something, they're saying something, they're saying A, but they're not doing A and they're not returning your phone call. So I think who you're dealing with or comfortable with takes time to really listen to your intuition and listen to your self-talk about, okay, yep, I trust this person. They're really who I want to deal with um, and also their values as well. I think that's why you and I get on so well, Tyrone. We have very similar Christian values and generous values and we're also similar values and principles from an investing point of view low risk, um, leveraging ourselves uh, and figuring out from who you're comfortable dealing with also as well is building those relationships and figuring out what how you add value. So Because if you might be busy and you've got no time, then how do you bring value to that relationship? Is it because you have capital or you have access to people who have capital? How do you add value to that relationship? Because obviously, if you don't add value to the relationship, then there's no need for you to be there, um, especially if you're doing a, yeah, a development. There's usually things that people need. They need skill. They need expertise. They need time. They need information. They need IP or, or they need um, capital, whether it's capital or serviceability. So there's usually four components to a deal, um, whether it's yeah the sales component or the production component, there's a finance component, which will not we won't go into now. But my point is, if you're not adding value to a relationship, then why are you there? It's so important to ask these questions because it's it's very easy to get excited, as you said, in the honeymoon period because you're going great. You know, this is fantastic deal here, and you know it's going to generate say a million bucks profit. But then you go, hold on, we've kind of very similar skill sets. Say you're working with a, a, another partner and then you go, hmm, who's going to be working with what? And you might have very similar strengths as well. Then you might have to go and say, okay, who, how are you going to make this whole, I guess, deal work properly? And that's where the roles come into play to divvy them up and see who's going to actually manage those. And it's important to have that open communication to talk about it. And especially if you've only met this person you know, for a few weeks or so, it's just important to delve and, and just kind of build that relationship up a little bit longer before delving into actually deal because it's not something you're going to be, you know, doing for maybe about a month or two and that's it, you know, in the story, you finish a project. It's going to be a long-term, at least minimum 12 to 18 months. And if you don't feel comfortable to be working with this person for a long term, 
then that's your gut intuition saying, okay, got to make some changes here and it might not be the right deal because as you know, there's plenty of opportunities out there but it's just actually who the right fits are to, to do these deals with that too. And then later on uh, in the podcast series, we'll talk about money partners and assessing money partners but I know that when you're starting out, sometimes because you might be financially constrained or you're tapped out serviceability-wise, sometimes you just want to get into a project with anybody that's willing to say yes and um, after a while of doing a lot of joint venture deals, no money down, I've realized that yeah, sometimes the, the partners that you work with, just like any personal relationship, are potentially the worst nightmares. They might seem um, soft and happy and warm and fuzzy at the beginning but because there were signs that you couldn't read or you misread at the beginning, uh, the potential issues um, that can cause you huge headaches down the track. So. It's a thing that you definitely progress along the way, learn how to navigate it, learn what you want, learn what you're willing to tolerate, what you're not willing to tolerate. And, and over time, you, be, you create your own set of money rules, even for investors, like minimum amounts, interest rates that you'll pay. I made mistakes where I paid too much interest because I was just so desperate to get that capital, you know, upwards of 4% a month. Um, that's 48% per annum. If you do the mass on that, that's crazy. And at the time, based on my feasibility of a get in, get out six months, my investors were going to get profitable and, and so was I. But the project stuffed up. I made some bad decisions. My business partner made some bad decisions and it took an extra year. So at 48% interest on the capital, which was the deposit and renovation costs, uh, what turned out, uh, what was meant to be a profitable deal turned out to be a hundred grand loss, which I was definitely uh, upset by and annoyed at the time and it frustrated, frustrated me immensely. But it was just a bad decision. I wasn't aware of you know, what um, the consequences would be. But my point is coming back to that, this is just a part of the process, the journey. I'm a lot sharper now and a lot smarter of my arrangement with my investors. And if the deal doesn't work, the deal doesn't work. So it, it's just um, one of those things that you learn along the way about knowing the people that you're working with and the arrangements and make sure that you're not biting off more than you can chew. That comes with experience. I mean, at the end of the day, sometimes we have to go through those challenges to be able to come out at the end stronger and learn from those experiences. Ideally, we don't want to, but <laughs> we, we, I guess we, we learn from these and then you know makes us all sharper and, and knows exactly who to go because that comes back down to gut intuition as well. So maybe in the next question in terms of say the, the money rules, we probably should be asking about you know how long are you willing to actually wait for your capital and, and how much profit are you willing to take out of it? That would be also a good question to ask for as part of the money rules. I remember when I was starting out doing deals and I remember that just getting into any deal I was happy to do. You know, So it's kind of like you're just happy to participate and do a no money down deal and let's just do it. Let's, you're, you're all excited and lost in the emotion. But when things started to drag on and on and on and I wasn't getting paid for 12, 18 months, I realized, geez, you know, time is critical. Getting in, getting out, getting paid uh, is a definite mantra of mine. And so I'd like to encourage you know, people, if you're looking at doing a deal, like a 12-month framework I think is realistic. Uh, three to six months isn't necessarily realistic. Sometimes you can get deals in and out um, in three to six months, but in more realistic terms, like a 12-month time frame is realistic because it does take time to get approvals. Like you said there, Tyrone, your approval took 12 months, uh, sorry, six months, and you've still got civil works to do. Uh, it, 
the renovation works are done from what you're saying and yeah, it's going to take time to get quotes for those civil works and still get titles and plan sealing on there and sell the land as well. So um, I think a 12-month time frame is realistic for projects up to you know maybe five dwellings. Uh, anything larger than that that in- involves a construction or a build of a house can take 18 to 24 months on, on top of the approval time frame. Um, in Melbourne itself, you know, it's probably one of the tougher places to get approvals. Um, you can get you know, nine to 12 months, take nine to 12 months to just get plans and permits, as they call it down there. Um, as we're experiencing with that childcare centre, it hasn't come through yet, but still working on it. And once you've got the approval, let's say it does take 12 months, it's another six to 12 months to get the project out of the ground, whether you're building it, subdividing it, there's more time, money and energy required. So we're talking you know, 24 months and not making a cent, if not all, all the money's just going out for, for 18, 24 months. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into why buying under market value is so important. Buying under market value is a really essential skill and combining that with what I call free blocks of land or having some development upside is absolutely critical. What a free block of land is? Free block of land is a general term that I use to uh, when I'm talking about the opportunity to extract extra value that is right in front of your eyes. So the development models that have inspired Young? It took me a few years to figure out that strategy. Uh, I'll give you a couple of models that I've duplicated or copied off. So that's next and you're listening to the Think Big Property Podcast. Hey podcast listeners, we want to give you something extra special just for listening. When you head over to thinkbigproperty.com and subscribe, you'll receive a free chapter from Nung's book called Bankable. Inside, you'll learn about which development strategy is right for you, where you can find the best bargains, buy property at a discount and how do you get free blocks of land. Simply visit thinkbigproperty.com to get your free chapter. we all face as challenges as developers is that it sounds great because when you finish the project and you get a big profit or chunk profit at the end, it, it sounds amazing. But it's those challenges that you face during that time period because one, you've got to sustain your cash flow and making sure that you can continue to fund the deal, pay for whatever, uh, I guess, things that need to be done to make sure that deal continues to flow through. But also too, to manage all the expectations because it's not just only yourself but you've also got say money partners or the vendors or stakeholders are involved in all this as well too. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people talk enough about because these are things that people face day-to-day on the day-to-day challenges throughout property development. So yeah, I guess the the thing what we'd like to probably talk a little bit about is um, I guess is the last question for money rules or another rule we'd be wanting to talk about is how much under market do you need to buy to make it worthwhile for you as well too. As you said to to us, um, Young, is that when you actually go into a development deal, it's actually when you actually, before you buy is where you make the money. So let's elaborate a little bit more on that. Buying under market value is a really essential skill and combining that with what I call free blocks of land or having some development upside is, is absolutely critical. So um, one of the things that people don't consider when they're looking at a property or buying under market value is the transaction costs. So a really simple formula that I use for working out transaction costs is roughly 5% in, 
5% out. So what that means is taking consideration stamp duty, legal fees, finance fees, it can cost roughly 5% to get in. If you're in some states, you might even pay stamp duty of 5%, which is crazy, right? So it's just the sheer money grab uh, that, that governments want or councils want to be able to uh, for you to transact. So um, 5% in, is a, is a good start on the calculation and then 5% out. So 5% out may include real estate agents com of two and a half to, to 3%, depending on which city or state that you're in. And then you've got holding costs, potentially negative gearing uh, because of vacancy during the renovation. So the reason I bring that up is if you're buying a property 10% under market value, then if you're buying it and then selling it at market value, you're barely just breaking even, if not making a small loss. So if you're going to, let's say, doing a basic buy, reno, sell, um, buy it under market value, you probably need to buy it for roughly 20% under market value to make a 10% earn based on a 10% transactional cost. So yeah, 5% in, 5% out. So that's a really just a a highlight to, to, to look at. Buying under market value is one thing to be able to extract equity, but if you're wanting to sell it, you've got other transactional costs. So 5% in, 5% out. Um, when you're doing uh, yeah, development and you're wanting to get the, that free block of land, um, the return on that, um, buying under market value may or may not apply. And what I mean by that is you may have to pay retail uh, or close to asking price. And because of your brains or your abilities or your town planner's insight, you may be able to extract one or two or five dwellings off the backyard. I probably want to also just clarify a little bit about free block of land. Now, I, I know what that means, but maybe for some of the listeners, what do you mean by free block of land when you're purchasing at wholesale? Free block of land is a general term that I use to uh, when I'm talking about the opportunity to extract extra value that is right in front of your eyes, but you may have not seen it. You know? So, good example, a couple examples, but one of them is that house that I've got on 600 square meters, where due to the zoning of a multi-residential, I was able to put a duplex on the back. So, the backyard previously had a shed, it had a bit of a balcony, and I cut off that balcony and removed that shed. And through the council process, surveying some drawings and construction, I was able to take advantage of that free block of land in the backyard. That's a basic example. Uh, Another one uh, that I did last year was a two into five lot subdivision where it was on 1,062 square meters. Once again, zoned for units and townhouses, multi-residential, able to keep the house, subdivide the block not into three, one into three, but uh, create another four blocks out of it. So essentially it was already two lots and I cut it into five lots, so still keeping the house. A free block of land concept in purest form is where you keep the house and you subdivide a property off it, you add another one, two, five dwellings. Um, Otherwise, sometimes you may have to knock down the house and create two dwellings. So keeping the the, the block of land, let's say 800 square meters, 1,000 meters, knocking down the house or moving the house, sliding the house, it's not ideal, um, but still maintaining the value of the property and generating two or more blocks of land. So, that, that, that's what I mean by free blocks of land. So, a lot of times in these instances, for example, if you're not to necessarily um, sell all the blocks off, you'd keep up, say, one one of the houses after the subdivision and use it as part of adding to your portfolio. Is that how you go about some of these type of deals? That's definitely one way to do it. You might as a purist scenario, go um, build three, keep one, sell two, or you might um, build five, sell four, keep one. So the ratios are are not 
crystal clear in the way that uh, there's no surefire formula, but it's just keeping one along the way because the ones that you're selling down, you're using that profit to pay down some of the debt on the one that you're holding, as well as you get your capital back and, and clearing out that debt. So it's a sell, yeah, build some, sell some keep some. If you wanted to even expand on that, you might um, do two projects. One might be a one into two subdivision. The other one might be a one into five townhouse project. So you might sell one project in its entirety and keep another project in its entirety. That, that's another way is sell some, keep some, sell some, keep some. Um, yeah, to, to break it on down and uh, to simplify your life if you want to do that. That's great because at the end of the day, ultimately, the goal is, is for us to build a portfolio rather than continue to cash i guess churn the cash back in and out of developments because passive income is is really something that we're also quite heavily focused on as well um it's as part of building up an asset base because ultimately if you want to just be an active developer it's just really build sell build sell but to do what you're doing buy some keep some sell some is, is a really really good strategy to have in place it took me a few years to figure out that strategy uh I'll give you a couple of models that I've duplicated or copied off. One is a Harry Triggerboff model. I know we talked about on the last uh, podcast of the Meriton model where he's built 50, 60 plus thousand apartments and he's kept two to three thousand of them and doing service uh, accommodation, right? So um, as an example of that, if he's keeping two to three thousand apartments, call that five percent of his portfolio. That's one in twenty or so, and then he's generating, let's say, somewhere between five hundred dollars a week and a thousand dollars a week from those serviced apartments. At two thousand apartments, a thousand dollars a week—that's two million dollars a week rental income, right? That's positive net. So that's assuming that they're debt-free because he's used his selling strategy to pay off and hold these properties debt-free. Right, so that's a good model that that um, I've studied and essentially copying. Another one which uh, most people don't know about, uh, as terms of a model, is what Mervac do. So, do you know the Mervac model there? No, please share. I've actually I've only heard the Harry Triggerboff method, and that's mainly from you. I can't reveal all my secrets. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. But the the, the strategies I use are from good models. So, I'll give you an example uh, of the Mervac model. Is a Mervac model? If you think about it, they sell all their houses and apartments. Correct. Yep. So essentially, they they sell that, but they don't actually talk about their commercial property portfolio. So generally, what they do is they sell all the residential and they keep all the commercial. Yeah, so they have a model whereby the residential stuff that they have, they just buy it, develop it and sell it as fast as they can, apartments, land, townhouses, whatever it is, but they keep the high yielding commercial property and that's a key word there is it doesn't mean that you and I have to go into commercial property, it's just the high yielding, high rental play is what they're keeping and that's no different to you know if I'm selling off 30 blocks of land and I'm just keeping or building a multi-occupancy um, mini boarding house that's renting for 10 to 12 percent that's a very similar thing is you're selling the low yielding stuff which is the residential mums and dads own occupier individual dwellings um, that are potentially you know two to four percent yield you sell that off and then you're keeping the high yield properties which is no different to the Harry Triggerboff is serviced apartments in some ways is a commercial property model where um, the properties are high yielding as well. I love that because when you think of it from a commercial point of view because in, in the instance of Mervac, the commercial properties have a long-term lease. You know, usually it'd be like a three plus three option or five plus five option. So therefore, you kind of have that security that it's going to be there for quite a while. And same thing with uh, 
Harry's uh, model service apartments, they've got people going in there regularly and it's maintained on behalf as a business rather than him having to get a, I guess, residential, which is just signing up like a 12-month lease. So I guess that that's very, very profitable from that side of things and looking from that commercial side, it's, it's a really, really powerful strategy. And we can even put a whole episode behind this one in future to talk about it because I think there's so much gold to talk about and share with the listeners. So I think maybe what we should do is wrap up now actually and, and share with them an action task or assignment that we've been talking about. At, as we mentioned at every single episode at the end, we're going to give some takeaways so that way our listeners can also take away and do an assignment or an action task so it makes it really practical. So you know, take it away and maybe share with them what is their assignment task for this week. We're on episode number two as you know and action task for this episode is get clear on your money rules. I suggest you go back and listen to some of the questions and prompters that we've got. There was about probably a dozen or so. Um, I'm not too concerned, but if you could just answer maybe at least five of the questions there, five of the questions there, money, you know, how much money maybe you're willing to invest, how much time you're willing to invest, what's your minimum return on, minimum return on investment, could be three of them. Uh, there's a whole stack more, re-listen to that and, and at least answer five of the questions. I've got no issues with you guys, you know, just send us an email of any of the responses that you have or any of the questions you might have in terms of, wow, or responses or aha moments, you might realize, you know what, I want to do property full time, but at this point in time, I'm only willing to invest two hours a week. It's just that self-awareness that oftentimes people live in fantasy land of, I want to quit this, my job fast, but I can only give two to four hours a week. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with putting in two to four hours a week doing property. It's just matching the expectations of results to the amount of work that you're willing to put in. I think it's so important to actually have these money rules in place, especially before you even do start any project or development that you go into because it really, really helps you determine where you want to head and it, it gives you clarity because then instead of looking at all the hundreds and hundreds of deals all at one go, you can actually narrow down and focus on what's going to be the best deal for your situation and for your time right now. Exactly and, and that's a big part of the game is 99% of the deals in reality don't work for your circumstances or mine and, and if you're not clear on your money rules, that's where people lose so much time is they look at five deals, 10 deals, 20 deals and they're trying to do feasibilities on all of them but they're not really sure why the deals don't work and, and that's why money rules are so important. Coming up on the next episode of the Think Big Property Podcast, we'll be diving into buying strategies, buying at a wholesale price is absolutely essential. So I suppose that that's the first thing but the thing we also got to get your head around is that buying property wholesale is possible. We'll hear some very useful advice. Probably the easiest way for us is to firstly start with the concept of you make your money when you buy, not when you sell. The type of properties Nyung likes to invest in? I prefer houses over townhouses or apartments simply because you get better capital growth, better demand. And that's next time on the Think Big Property Podcast. Hey, just a quick one. Want to learn how to find property bargains with very little work? Then this is for you. When you head over to thinkbigproperty.com and register your seat, you'll learn three ways to make vendors chase you. Simple no money down developments virtually anyone can do. 
the nine secret words that make sellers drop their price by thirty to $50,000 on the spot and much, much more. Visit thinkbigproperty.com to register your seat and access the online workshop. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.